Welcome to Thinking Out Louder, episode two. Today I actually have a theme, not just a random episode. Uh, Mike's setup still isn't great. I think it's a little better than last time. And today's episode is the truth about Hillary Clinton. Am I a Donald Trump supporter? No. If I were an American, would I have voted for Hillary Clinton? Hell no. What's this episode going to cover? It's not a hit piece on Hillary, but it kind of will sound like that. But it's not. I'm going to cover the initial Clinton administration, Bill and Hillary, and not so much the foundation, but just the political side of things. I could easily jump into the sexual assault claims against Bill Clinton and the failure of Hillary's performance on the campaign trail for the 2016 election, but this video is mostly going to be about how the Clintons furthered the economic separation of blacks and other minorities from whites, played a hand in injustice, sorry, an unjust invasion of foreign powers, and we're also going to focus on Hillary's role in the Obama administration as Secretary of Defense. So this all really starts with Bill Clinton, a new Democrat who was elected governor of Arkansas in 1979 and stayed in position until 1981. And then he was reelected in 1983 and stayed in position until 1992. Bill Clinton defeated George H.W. Bush for that presidency, or sorry, for the presidency in 1992, and he served until 2001. So what are the significant points of this presidency and what role did Hillary play in uh, Bill Clinton's administration, their uh, forwarding of laws and in all the controversy and I, I would dare say crimes that they were involved in. We wanna hear something scary. There used to be this documentary on Netflix and I lost the name. I think it might've been Clinton Incorporated, but I only think that because it's the only one I could find when I did a Google search, so I really don't fucking know. So anyways, I went on Netflix looking for this documentary I'd seen in 2016, maybe 2017, no, it was 16, and it was gone. It was just plain gone, and then I looked for it on YouTube, it wasn't there. Uh, the only one that's still there is Clinton Cash, but you can still find the IMDB information, it's on Rotten Tomatoes, and The Guardian, and some other... Uh, news sources did a hit piece on something that you can no longer find. Am I a conspiracy theorist? Do I think that like Hillary and Bill Clinton own the internet and are like shutting everything down? No. But is it strange that I can't find this fucking movie and that YouTube and everything keeps like just putting down anything exposing these guys? <clears throat> And I've been watching a lot of Norm MacDonald lately, man. He was ripping on Bill Clinton for a long time. So I'm going to start with what I think is the most important point of this episode. And it's uh, the effect on the African-American community, specifically, and other minorities, and even poor white people, that uh, the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act of 1994, passed by the Clinton administration, uh, did. Like, it was really, really not what it looked like. This started the three strikes thing as well. So Bill Clinton is known as the only presidency, the Clinton administration, the only presidency to have a time of peace 
but if you really look into things, they, they did participate in foreign policy ventures. And um, he committed war on his own people economically. Hillary and Bill Clinton committed war on poor people and got rich doing it. It's, yeah, it's fucked up. They got rich from other activities, but they definitely started a war on poor people. So what is the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act of 1994? Oh, good old Wikipedia. The Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act of 1994 is an act of Congress dealing with crime and law enforcement. Named so because it became law in 1994. So it's the largest crime bill in the history of the U.S. It had 356 pages that provided for 100,000 new policy offers, 9.7 billion in funding for prisons, holy shit, and 6.1 billion in funding for prevention programs, which were designed by significant input from experienced officers with significant input. This was sponsored by Representative Jack Brooks of Texas, and the bill was originally Senator Joe Biden of Delaware and was passed by Congress and signed into law by Bill Clinton. Fucking Joe Biden. Piece of shit. <laughs> so this, uh, this Violent Crime Act kind of reached way past violent crime and went into misdemeanors such as pot use and pot possession and also introduced the three strikes law. So you get caught with a joint three times and you're going to jail. So it has eight provisions. This is going to be a long episode, guys. We're getting deep into the fucking Clintons. So number one was the Federal Assault Weapons Ban, formerly known as the Public Safety and Recreational Firearms Use Protection Act, uh, but became known as the Federal Assault Weapons Ban, or Semi-Automatic Firearms Ban. Barred the manufacture of 19 specific semi-automatic firearms classified as assault weapons, as well as semi-automatic rifle, pistol, or shotgun capable, or a shotgun capable of accepting a detachable magazine. That is two or more features considered characteristics of such weapons. The list of such features included telescoping or folding stocks, pistol grips, flash depressors, grenade launchers, and bayonet logs. In writing, it's it's starting to look like a pretty nice bill. We don't need, I mean, who needs detachable magazines, telescopic or folding stocks for hunting? But it also banned magazines that could hold 10 or more rounds. It took place in September 13th of 94, but it expired on 13th of 04 by sunset provision. Hmm. Since the expiration date, there is no federal ban on subject firearms or magazines capable of holding more than 10 rounds of ammunition. 1.2, the Federal Death Penalty Act. It created 60 new death penalty offenses under 41 capital statutes for crimes related to act of terrorism, murder of a federal law enforcement officer, civil rights related murders, drive-by shootings resulting in death, the use of weapons of mass destruction resulting in jack death and carjackings resulting in death. The 95 Oklahoma City bombing occurred a few months after this law came into the effect. 
and the Anti-Terrorism and Effect Death Penalty Act of 1996 was passed in response, which further increased the federal death penalty. In 01, Timothy McVeigh was executed for the murder of eight federal law enforcement agents under that title. Again, I wouldn't disagree with anything I just read. Elimination of higher education for inmates. Now, this is one that I feel pretty strong about. If you want to improve our society, you have to make less angry, criminalistic-minded people. A lot of people end up in these prisons and they just learn crime from criminals. If we give them better things to do, they can get out with a degree or something, maybe, technical skills, a trade, and better our society instead of worsen it. This was considered a controversial provision. So it overruled a section of the Higher Education Act of 1965, which permitted prison inmates to receive a Pell Grant for higher education while they were incarcerated. And this is the amendment to that act. In general, Section 401B8 of the Higher Education Act of 1965 is amended to read as follows. No basic, no basic grant skill shall be awarded under this subpart to any individual who is incarcerated in any federal or state penal institution. Sorry if the volume is too low, guys. There is a growing advocacy for, <laughs> advocacy for reinstating Pell Grant funding for all prisoners who have qualified despite their incarceration status. 1.3, Violence Against Women Act. Okay, so I don't agree with 1.2. No, 3, sorry. 1.4 is the Violent Women, Violence Against Women Act. Apparently I forgot how to speak this morning. <clears throat> this allocated $1.6 billion to help prevent and investigate violence against women. I'm down for that, 100%. It was renewed in 2000, 2005, and 2013. This includes the Safe Streets for Women Act, which increased federal penalties to repeat sex offenders and requires mandatory restitution for the medical and legal costs of sex crimes. The Safe Homes for Women Act increased the federal grants for battered women shelters, created a national domestic violence hotline, and required for restraining orders of one state to be enforced by other states. No, that's good. People, people can get crazy. It also added a rape shield law to the federal rules of evidence. 1.5, Driver's Privacy Protection Act. Governs the privacy and disclosure of personal information gathered by the state's Department of Motor Vehicles. I like this. Passed in 94, it was introduced by Jim Moran in 1992. Yeah, that has not been amended, and I like that uh, particular section. But in the bigger picture, trust me, this is not, not a good act that got passed. Next is Jacob Butterling Crimes Against Children and Sexual Violent Offender Registration Act. This really doesn't read like that bad. Nobody wants kids to be abused or assaulted. Community-oriented policing services. Yeah, why not? Fund that shit. Other provisions. So the act authorized the initiation of boot camps for delinquent minors. 50 new federal offenses were added, including provisions making memberships in gangs a crime. I think that does kind of, yeah, that was, uh, it was controversial because it, it kind of steps on the freedom of association laws that's actually in the Bill of Rights. 
I'm on page with freedom of association and freedom of speech. It's really hard to make a gang illegal without making groups of people illegal. And you don't want to hand that kind of power over to a state. Because the wrong person gets in there and they're going to use it. You have to picture like some of these people that get into power, they're looking for everything they can use and not get in trouble. And then everything else that they can get away with. So it's important not to just hand power over to the state. I'm not a libertarian, so don't jump on me with that shit. The act generally prohibits individuals who have been convicted of a felony, including breach of trust, from working in the business of insurance. It reads like a really good act. It made drug testing mandatory for those serving on the federal supervised release. On federal supervised release. It prohibits any person acting on behalf of a government authority to engage in a pattern or practice that deprives persons of rights, privileges, or immunities secured or protected by the Constitution or laws of the United States. Look at that. The Democrats used to care about the fucking Constitution. The New Age Democrats. The use of excessive force by law enforcers, such as reports, have not been issued, however. The Act included a three-strikes provision addressing repeat offenders. It's just barely there. But that was the biggest hit of this entire... It's just one sentence here and what I'm reading, given it's Wikipedia, but... It's just barely there. The three strikes provision is literally what put all these black men in jail in the United States. And then the funding for the prisons was just waiting there for them, which was in the first part. It reads very well, but the very beginning, the funding of the prisons, the very end, the three strikes rule, that's a deadly combination for minorities and for poor people in general. It's horrible. It's actually sad like that people don't see this as like where it began in the, the modern systemic racism of the United States. This is it right here. It's not like Vox and... All those fucking shitty outlets that talk about the patriarchy. No, this is it right here. It started with the Clinton administration. Modern slavery. And also, combined with uh, the welfare state that was also passed by these fuckers. Sorry. <laughs> passed by the Clinton administration. It's two major factors of why the black community... Young black men were missing fathers in their lives. And why they eventually reach out and identify with gangs so hard because they need the father figure. It's a horrible setup. And then everyone ends up in jail. Mm. Alright, so the bigger picture and the point of this video yeah, are the crimes of Hillary and Bill Clinton. Got an article here from theblackdetour.com. I'm not sure how reputable this source is, 
You can find this in the description and decide for yourself. But it reads, in the past, former President Bill Clinton was known throughout the black community as the first black president. <laughs> what? When the idea of having a black president was far, far-fetched. Far-fetched. Duh. Clinton's relationship with the black community was strong during the 1992 and 1996 presidential campaign. Clinton gained the, gained the black community support, particularly Southern African Americans. Being that he was from Arkansas helped him a great deal. He had 75% of the black vote on Super Tuesday in 1992. But due to the crime bill he passed in 94, he is now known as one of the scapegoats who caused the mass incarceration of black people, specifically black men. The law issue was the Violent Crime Act of 94, which led to the rising incarceration rates of black men. The law also implemented a three-strike policy. The three-strike statute provides for mandatory life in prison if a convicted felon, one, has been convicted in federal court of a serious violent felony, two, has two or more previous conviction in federal or state courts, at least of which is serious violent felony, the other offense may be a serious drug offense. The purpose of the three-strikes policy was to drastically increase the punishment of those convicted of more than two serious crimes. Unfortunately, marijuana is a Schedule One fucking drug, and they get caught with it three times and you're in jail. And then the welfare state that these guys created just uh, kind of uh, incentivized families splitting up. So tons of like dads that should have been living at home weren't, and they were pretending to be together still, and you know shit like that. It's crazy. It's an understatement to say, I should well, quote. It's an understatement to say that the black family was greatly impacted by mass incarceration and the war on drugs. According to data, a child whose parent is in prison is at a disadvantage compared to a child who has both parents in their lives. Uh, you don't need a graph to, to know that. <laughs> The effects on the black family runs deep, even back to slavery, when the father was often separated from his wife and kids. Mass incarceration was just another example of the United States targeting black people in their communities. Regardless of propaganda that many mainstream media outlets put out there, painting a narrative that black people are naturally criminal and dangerous is simply not true. We cannot ignore the number of incarcerated people in the United States is abnormally high, mainly caused by many years of incarcerating black men for non-violent drug offenses. Incarceration rates skyrocketed in recent decades. According to Pew Research, 2.7 million American children have had at least one parent incarcerated. Their same research suggests that 11.4% of black children have a parent incarcerated to the 1.8% of white children. Ten times more. Oh my God. If you're black, you're ten times more likely to have a father in prison for a nonviolent drug offense in the United States of America. Yeah, nonviolent offenses comprise two-thirds of those convictions. That's disgusting. 
<clears throat> and I don't know if any of you youngins out there know this, but there's a video of Hillary Clinton talking about black people as super predators. You have to see this. I'm going to show you. The C-SPAN networks bring you long-form public affairs programs. It's actually ridiculous. Like, it's crazy that this happened. The C-SPAN networks bring you long-form public affairs programming. Sorry, the audio is being weird. i got to fix this here. Maybe turn down the quality. God damn it. The C-SPAN networks bring you long-form public affairs programming from the nation's capital and are a public service of your television provider. C-SPAN, created by cable. The fourth challenge is to take back our streets from crime, gangs, and drugs. And we have actually been making progress on this count as a nation because of what local law enforcement officials are doing, because of what citizens and neighborhood patrols are doing. We're making some progress. Much of it is related to the initiative called community policing because we have finally gotten more police officers on the street. That now, when I read through the bill, I thought that was a pretty good idea, right? Listen to this. It was one of the goals that the president had when he pushed the crime bill that was passed in 1994. He promised 100,000 police. We're moving in that direction, but we can see it already makes a difference because if we have more police interacting with people, having them on the streets, we can prevent crimes. We can prevent petty crimes from turning into something worse. But we also have to have an organized effort against gangs. Just as in a previous generation, we had an organized effort against the mob. We need to take these people on. They are often connected to big drug cartels. They are not just gangs of kids anymore. They are often the kinds of kids that are called super predators. No conscience, no empathy. We can talk about why they ended up that way, but first we have to bring them to heal. And the president has asked the FBI to launch a very concerted effort against gangs everywhere. In addition to that, he has appointed a new drug czar. You probably saw him Tuesday night. He's one of the most distinguished uh, active military generals that we have in our country. He's already proven that he knows how to interdict drugs because of his command of the uh, South American uh, activity on behalf of the United States. But General McCaffrey will make a big difference. And I believe it is now time for all of us to know what we can do individually to be part of this anti-crime, anti-gangs, anti-drug effort. The fifth challenge is to protect the environment. So it doesn't sound very obvious, but she's talking about minorities. Minorities that are men. She's responded to it on CNN, though, years later. In 1996, you used the term super predators to describe some young kids. Some feel like it was racial code. Was it, and were you wrong to use that term? Well, I was speaking about um, drug cartels and criminal activity that was very concerning to uh, folks across the country. She's just fucking tiptoeing around this one. She's like, oh, shit. Um, I think it was a poor choice of words. I never used it before. I haven't used it since. I would not use it again. Because my... 
so in light, sir, uh, the answer is yes. That was racist. <laughs> <laughs> My whole life, to go back to what I was uh, saying to uh, Mr. McGee, is, you know, really, ever since I went to work for the Children's Defense Fund, is to try to figure out ways to even the odds for people that are left out and left behind. And I know very well that we have too many kids in our country right now who are living in poverty, who are going to schools like the ones in Detroit. That have uh, again, yes, sir, I, uh, I do see this term as racial code. <laughs> it, it was about black kids. ...have mold and rodents <laughs> in them. I saw that in South Carolina. It's unfortunately across America. So what we've got to do is provide more opportunities earlier in the lives of every child. Enough fucking said, right? She just said yes with a whole lot of words. She just said yes. Okay, now we're going to play a clip of Abby Martin on the Joe Rogan experience. Sorry, Joe. Please don't put my video down. <clears throat> it's her just talking about why Hillary Clinton is a war criminal, and she'll do a way better job than I could. Hillary Clinton is a war criminal. I'm sorry. And what I, makes her a war criminal? Because she has voted for, first of all, let's just look at the Iraq war vote killed 2 million people in Iraq. New figures just came out that said that 2 million people have died in Iraq and Afghanistan since 2003, not even to mention the million babies who died from sanctions in the 90s. Aside yeah, from that, Hillary that really happened. Uh, the media tried to say it didn't, but it really did. The United States put a sanction on Iraq. I forget why. Uh, over some, you know, other foreign conflict that they both had stake in, I think. And people starved literally to death families towns and it just got swept under the rug and your conspiracy theorists if you think it happened clinton the gaddafi libya um syria she wants to bomb iran i mean she is the worst if you she look said at she her she wants to bomb iran you look someone did a report i think it was in the new york times kind of an embedded report in the national security cabinet and they said that she is on par, if not worse, than John McCain of all of her war hawkish ideals in terms of foreign oh. policy. It is scary shit, man. So as much as people want to pretend like she's like this liberal do-gooder, I'm most concerned about any imperialism, militarism, and, you know, U.S. hegemony. So I'm not going to be voting for Hillary Clinton because she's a fucking woman. I don't give a shit. Right. If someone's a woman, if they're black, if they're gay, if they are perpetuating war crimes and killing innocent people i know going back to what you said it's hard to be a president and not i'm in love with abby martin <laughs> have someone's death on your hands but fucking a you don't have to just sign up to kill millions of people on a fake war against a non-existent threat i wonder what motivates someone like hillary clinton at this stage of Gulf her life money you should look at who funds her <clears throat> campaign it is unbelievable the clinton foundation dude check this out the clinton foundation not only, you know, like all these giant corporations and banks, the real creepy part is when you see Saudi and Gulf states actually giving her tens of millions of dollars over the years. That shit is scary. Saudi Arabia basically has bribed so many politicians. Harvard, Oxford, like all of these institutions to get Saudi money. And then you start to understand the culture of silence around Saudi Arabia and why we have this double standard, this egregious double standard in the war on terror and this unholy partnership with this country. Now we're bombing Yemen together. Bombing Yemen together. Saudi Arabia and the US. Bombing the shit out of Yemen, the poorest country in the entire Arab world. What, what good is that 
going to do? How what? is that going to exacerbate the problems there? Bombing the poorest country in the Middle East. What is the motivation? So Saudi Arabia doesn't want the Houthi rebels because they threaten Saudi Arabia. So Saudi Arabia like backed a coup um, and supported a puppet regime in Yemen a while back. And Yemen is just kind of a thorn in Saudi Arabia's side. What do we get out of bombing Yemen? Bribery, political bribery and hegemony and dom domination, regional influence. And if you think uh, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton are enemies right now, I think you're mistaken. Like Hillary and Bill don't all of a sudden just drop out of the scene because the Obama administration is not in power anymore. Their military contacts, their international contacts, all the businesses they're involved in. There's no fucking way that this, they're not, you know, I don't want to say in league, but diplomatic at the very least. Um, and, and plus Saudi Arabia wants us to. But when you look at the coalition that's actually bombing Yemen, it's like brutal, oppressive monarchies and like genocidal dictators like Sudan's dictator. And then you have like, I think, Egypt, Bahrain. Um, and Saudi Arabia and a, and a couple other countries. It's like, wow, great job. Great job. Why is the U.S. supporting bombing Yemen? And, and on a side note, the U.S. has been bombing Yemen with drones for years anyway. Um, and then you keep hearing on the news that Iran is backing the Houthi rebels in Yemen, and that's why we need to go in and destroy them. But I talked to this guy who's like an expert, and he's, and he's Saudi, and he runs this institute. Um, everyone check out the podcast on Media Roots. It's really, uh, really mind-blowing shit, because he just breaks down really what is happening on the ground. And he says, look, Iran is not backing the Houthis any more than Saudi Arabia is backing ISIS. Like, all of these things have um, influence, and yeah, the money's filtered down, but it's such a double standard. If we're going to say Iran's backing the Houthi rebels, then we need to say that ISIS is funded by Saudi Arabia, and so is Al-Qaeda, because for a large part it is it is that double standard in saudi arabia is bizarre it's bizarre and creepy it's well, you get the point the clinton administration started the bombing in yemen basically a genocide happening in yemen there we go i don't want anything that is said to me or about me uh to take away from the heroic efforts that the diplomatic security officers uh exhibited uh, the five men who were with uh, Chris and Sean Smith risked their lives repeatedly and were themselves um, under grave threat. I wanted to point out that even when we try to get it right, which we do try, sometimes there are unintended consequences and, and there is an example you killed those boys. Out of this tragedy. Coming out of previous assessments of attacks on facilities, uh, we now have safe havens, safe rooms in uh, facilities, particularly residences. The diplomatic security officers were able to get both Chris and Sean into that safe room. Of course, the idea behind the safe room, why security experts advocated for them, was to protect our, our civilians, our diplomats, uh, from attacks like the one that was occurring. The attackers used diesel fuel 
to set the compound on fire. And the safe room was anything but safe. I'm sure the committee members know that neither... The safe room was anything but safe. Jesus Chris Stevens Christ. nor Sean Smith died from injuries directly inflicted by the attackers. They both died of smoke inhalation. And one of the recommendations in this ARB report is that when we have safe havens, we need to have uh, equipment that will enable people that are safe within them to withstand uh, what happened in Benghazi. The lead diplomatic security officer who was with both the ambassador and Sean Smith endeavored to lead them to safety through a wall of black smoke. He wanted to get them out of the compound interior up to the roof where they could be out of the fire uh, and also out of the attacker's um, assault. He himself nearly died of smoke inhalation. When he looked around to make sure that both Sean and Chris were with him, he couldn't find them. Rather than proceeding and saving himself, which would be a natural human instinct, he turned back into that black diesel smoke. And now she's pandering. Desperately trying to find uh, Chris and Sean. He did find Sean, and Sean had succumbed to smoke inhalation. And the diplomatic security officer managed to take Sean out of the building. I can't even listen to her any longer. So if you haven't heard about the Benghazi story, look it up. I'm not going any further into it. Now we have a history of violence. This is maybe the worst of all of the things. I did consider their effect on the black population to be the most important, but th this is pretty fucked. There are many conspiracy theories around the Clintons and uh, people have died. <laughs> I mean, since 1993. So it, there's no solid evidence proving either Hillary or Bill uh, responsible for any of these murders or deaths or suicides or disappearances. But we're gonna we're gonna look into it with Eddie Bravo. We're gonna <clears throat> check it out. So Deputy Deputy White House Counsel Vincent W. Foster was found dead in Fort Marcy Park off the George Washington Parkway in Virginia, outside Washington D.C., on July twentieth, ninety three. His death was ruled a suicide by five official investigations, but remains the subject of conspiracy theories. He was discovered from a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. He was holding a gun in his hand. An autopsy and subsequent investigation later confirmed that Foster had committed suicide by shooting himself once in the mouth with a .38 caliber revolver found at the scene. So there was the White House travel con office controversy happening at the time, which is why people think he killed himself. And they also found a note in there. It was the 27th note. And it just, like, was uh, a list of maybe, like, 12 confessions. Mostly they were saying that they did nothing wrong. 
but there were a few things like the press is covering up the illegal benefits they received from the travel staff. So obviously some things were happening. I'll read it out. I made mistakes from ignorance, inexperience, and overwork. I did not knowingly violate any law or standard of conduct. No one in the White House, to my knowledge, violated any law or standard of conduct, including any action in the travel office. There was no intent to benefit from any individual or specific group. The FBI lied in their report to the AG. The press is covering up the illegal benefits they received from the travel staff. The GOP has lied and misrepresented its knowledge and role and covered up their prior investigation. The usher's office plotted to have excessive costs incurred, taking advantage of the khaki and HRC. The public will believe the innocence of the Clintons and their loyal staff. The Wall Street Journal editors lie without consequence. I was not meant for the job or on or the spotlight of public life in Washington. Here ruining people is considered sport. So I think this is what Norm Macdonald was talking about when he was on The View that long, long time ago. So here are the conspiracy theories. The Arkansas Project. On May 2nd, 1999, the Washington Post published new details on the pursuit of a foster conspiracy in an article by David Brooke, a key figure in the Trooper Gate and Whitewater scandals, whose disillusionment with the political corruption motivating what would come to be known as the Arkansas Project ended his lifelong commitment to the conservative movement and facilitated public dis dissemination of insider details on GOP machinations. Machinations? <laughs> the article explains how Brock was summoned to a meeting with Rex Armistead in Miami, Florida at an airport hotel. Brock claims that Armistead laid out for him an elaborate Vince Foster murder scenario. Scenario that he found implausible. A veteran crime reporter, Dan Moldier, wrote a book titled A Washington Tragedy, How the Death of Vince Foster Ignited a Political Firestorm. In researching the debacle created and surrounding Foster's death, Moldier found the most oft-used conspiracy scenario could be traced back to the Park Police Major Robert Hines, who shared the idea with Reed Irvine and Christopher Ruddy, Moldy concludes, and Major Hines publicly maintains that Hines incorrectly told Irvine and Ruddy that there is no exit wound in Foster's head. I don't think there was anything nefarious here. He was being approached by reporters and he wanted something to say. Hmm. The missing exit wound claim continued to surface. Buster had some blonde hair and carpet fibers on his suit jacket, and he had semen in his underwear. Jesus Christ. <clears throat> P 
Patrick Matrasiana, president of Citizens for Honest Government, produced the Clinton Chronicles video and appeared in its commercials as an investigative reporter when he and Reverend Falwell engaged in the following exchange. Falwell, could you please tell me and the American people why you think your life and the lives of others in this video are in danger? He replies, with Jerry, two weeks ago we had an interview with a man who was an insider. His plane crashed and he was killed an hour before the interview. You may say this is just a coincidence, but there's another fellow that we were also going to interview and he was killed in a plane crash. Jerry, these coincidences? I don't think so. When asked on the spot, this guy admitted he wasn't a reporter and replied, I doubt our lives are actually ever in any real danger. That was Jerry's idea to do that. He thought it would be dramatic. Wow. So we also have the murder of Seth Rich, which I'm sure most of you have heard about. So this guy was, I think he was the head of voter expansion, yeah, that's right, of the DNC. And he is thought to have leaked the emails that WikiLeaks ended up publishing. By the way, that wasn't Russia at all. And um, I think it was like 1 or 2 a.m., he got shot and murdered in front of his home. The police called it a robbery, but they didn't take anything. He still had his wallet, his, his watch, his phone, his keys. It's definitely a murder. But there are absolutely no, uh, there's no evidence to prove that this was the Clintons. It's kind of, <laughs> kind of hard to think it wasn't, though. So, Julian Assange, the founder of WikiLeaks, fueled a speculation in an interview published on August 9, 2016, I remember that, which touched on the topic of risks faced by WikiLeaks sources. Assange brought up the case of Seth Rich. When asked directly whether Rich was a source, Assange nodded and said, we don't comment on who our sources are. Subsequent statements by WikiLeaks emphasized that the organization was not naming Rich as a source. For context, Assange was well-known as a longtime critic of Clinton. came to light that WikiLeaks communicated with the Trump campaign over issues, casting doubt on Assange's motivation. Yeah, people thought he was a Trump supporter, but I think he was just more anti-Hillary than anything. In April 2018, Twitter direct messages revealed that even as Assange was suggesting publicly that WikiLeaks had obtained emails from Seth Rich, Assange was trying to obtain more emails from the hacker yeah, this is the one, Christopher 2.0, who was at the time suspected of being linked to Russian intelligence. Fucking BuzzFeed described the DMs as the starkest proof that yet Assange knew a likely Russian government hacker had the Democrat leaks he wanted. No, that's... That's just like... Something they're trying to blow up. Blow out of proportion. Christopher 2.0, I don't buy it. These conspiracy theories were promoted by Mike Cernovich, Sean Hannity, Geraldo Rivera, Kim.com, Paul Joseph Watson, Newt Gingrich, Jack Posebiak, and others. Yeah, the same people who pushed Pizzagate, right? <laughs> I never thought I'd see the news be this crazy.
Fox News has retracted a bunch of stories about it. Okay, I think our last controversy for this video is the Whitewater scandal. If you haven't heard about it, it's mostly like there were some shady investment people who had already had a failed business. That was kind of a scam. They t took people's money. Uh, Bill and Hillary knowingly invested into another one of these people's company, and they had to be witnesses in court when they ended up getting caught. That's not the exact story, but we're going to watch the testimony. Here we see the press. Sorry. Just some Norm McDonald there. Well, you're all still here, I see. I was glad to have the opportunity to tell the grand jury what I have been telling all of you. I do not know how the billing records came to be found where they were found, uh, but I am pleased that they were found because they confirm what I have been saying. Well, I looked forward to being able to tell the grand jury um, what I know, um, to be able to answer their questions. Um, I, like everyone else, would like to know the answer about how those documents uh, showed up after all these years. It would have been certainly to my advantage in trying to bring this uh, matter to a conclusion if they had been uh, found several years ago. So. I tried to be as uh, helpful as I could uh, in their uh, investigation efforts. But now I am going home and I hope all of you will as well. Thank you. This was one of the first real big controversies with the Clintons. They just ended up being witnesses in the trial, I'm pretty sure. What does this say? Oh, okay. Those stories tonight, January 12th, 1996, after this brief message. Tonight, Hillary Clinton under siege. This week, the spotlight was supposed to be on her important new book about the condition of children in America. And we will talk about video. that a bit later. But there's now an avalanche of serious charges and sharp criticism of the First Lady, who has been called a congenital liar by a columnist. Her credibility and integrity on the line. And yet many Americans don't understand the fuss. What has she done, if anything, that's illegal? Has she been telling the truth? Well, this week, Barbara braved the storm to sit down at the White House for an exclusive interview with the First Lady. Well, the headlines this week dealt... Fucking Barbara Walters. <laughs> ...with records suddenly found and memos newly discovered, a paper trail that has led even some Clinton loyalists to wonder, is Hillary Clinton a liability to the president? The White House was a picture postcard in this week's snow, as quiet and still outside and inside as I've ever seen it. When we met with Mrs. Clinton, she appeared confident and serene, seemingly unruffled by this week's storm of controversy. She'd read the accusations that she was inconsistent or worse, a liar, and she was ready to sit down and reply. Mrs. Clinton, instead of your new book being the issue, you have become the issue. How did you get in this mess where your whole credibility is being questioned? <laughs> oh, I ask myself that every day, Barbara, because it's very um, surprising and uh, confusing to me. But 
We've had questions raised for the last four years, and eventually they're answered, and they go away, and more questions come up, and we'll just keep doing our best to answer them, and hopefully it'll end at some point. Are you distressed? Occasionally I get a little distressed, a little sad, a little angry, irritated. I think that's only natural, but I know that that's part of the territory, and we'll just keep plowing through and trying to get to the end of this. Well... Hillary Clinton has been hustling for a long time. Let's talk about some of the things that are so much in the news this mm -hmm. week. The travel office. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Last week, a 1993 memo by a former White House aide, David Watkins, was made public in which he says that you were responsible for the firing of seven people in the White House travel office because you wanted to have an Arkansas uh, travel agency take its place. And there would have been nothing illegal about your doing that. But you have said you had no idea how the decision was made and that you had nothing to do with it. That's is he right. lying? Well, I think what is fair to say is that I did voice concern about the financial mismanagement that was discovered when the president arrived here in the White House travel office. I think that everyone who knew about it was quite concerned and wanted it to be taken care of. But I did not make the decisions. I did not direct anyone to make the decisions. But I have absolutely no doubt that I did express concern because I was concerned about any kind of financial mismanagement. So is it a question of how much concern? I mean, it, it, when you say you had nothing to do with it and he says you had everything to do with it, um, he's either not telling the truth or it's a misinterpretation or where are we? Well, I think, I don't know because I, I'm, I'm not uh, aware exactly of what led him to say that, but certainly Mac McClarty, who was the chief of staff, took responsibility for the decisions, has said very clearly, I did not tell him to do anything. He made the decisions, but he did it in consultation with many people whose advice he sought, whose concern he listened to. So I think, you know, that's something that I'll have to let someone else explain. You see, the picture that's coming out is of this domineering first lady, you know that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in his memo, he refers to an earlier incident in which he said you'd been furious over his failure to transfer certain secret service agents. He says he feared any delay in firing the travel office members would not have been tolerated by you. He said there would be hell to pay. What was the secret service incident? Well, I'm not sure what um, David Watkins is talking about. I can, I can tell you what... I was concerned about and again expressed it. Um, there had been some stories that were in the press um, attributed to Secret Service agents. That you had thrown a lamp or That's, a Bible. Or a at Bible your or a Mercedes Benz or, you know, there were many variations <laughs> on it. When stories like that get into what I consider to be, you know, respectable. Or a bottle or Mercedes Benz. Journalism. It does bother me, and it particularly bothered me that the Secret Service was being used to try to substantiate untrue stories, and I couldn't understand that. So I was concerned about it and expressed that concern. Did you ask to have certain Secret Service members put in another detail? No, no. I, I wanted the situation cleared up, because both for the Secret Service's sake, which is, after all, charged with a very difficult task and we have a great relationship with them but also for my sake I mean you know I have a pretty good arm if I'd thrown a lamp at somebody I think you would have known about it and you know when those things are said I just don't want that to get a life of its own so you wanted the situation controlled or I, I what, want right. your words. well I wanted for example the Secret Service to be able to say that didn't happen Did and they? 
Oh, yes. I mean, those, those stories stopped. Did you ever throw a lamp at your husband? Oh, yeah. Those stories stopped. The Secret Service helped. No, I didn't. Did you ever throw a Bible at your husband? No, I didn't. Do you have a terrible temper? <laughs> no, but I do get angry about things. I'm not going to deny that. I do. There are things that I think are wrong or things that I think um, should be fixed, and I am not at all shy about expressing my opinion. I, I try to be a direct person, and, but I don't tell people what to do. I say, here's what I think, and I'm concerned about this. Then there is the question of Madison Guarantee, a failed savings and loan that regulators say financed shady real estate deals. The bank's failure cost taxpayers $60 million. Hillary Clinton was what her law firm called the billing partner for the Madison account. There is a dispute as to how much work you did for the Madison Guarantee. You have said it was minimal. Mm -hmm. Investigators say you had a more involved relationship. Mrs. Clinton, I think most people don't understand it. They don't mm -hmm. care how much you build or how much money you made. But what they do think is, were you aware of any shady practices or actual wrongdoing on the part of this savings and loan for which you did legal work? Absolutely not. You did not know? Absolutely Even not. in their real estate deals? No, absolutely not. And in fact, um, this whole matter originated because of this Whitewater land deal. And we said when that came up that this was a failed real estate transaction t about 20 years ago now where we lost money and people said, well, prove it. So we proved that. Then they said, well, okay, how about this? The person you were in business with also later bought a savings and loan. Mr. McDougall. Mr. McDougall. Did you get money from that savings and loan? Was the money channeled to you? We said absolutely not. Did it go towards the president's campaign? Right, absolutely not. And in fact, a, an independent study that uh, has been done for the uh, Resolution Trust, Trust Corporation, mm -hmm. the RTC, by an independent law firm has looked at that Whitewater and Madison matter and said, indeed, what we said three and four years ago was the case. But they didn't have the billing records that they now have. Well, but that is not really the issue. You know, a month ago, people were jumping up and down because the billing records were lost mm -hmm. and they thought somebody might have destroyed them. Now the records are found and they're jumping up and down. But I'm glad the records were found. I wish they had been found a year or two ago because they verify what I've been saying from the very beginning. I worked about um, a, an hour a week for 15 months. That was not a lot of work uh, for me, certainly. One of the fraudulent loans of Madison Guarantee, which has gotten suddenly a lot of attention, mm -hmm. is something called Castle Grande. In a sworn statement, you said you had no memory of working on Castle That's Grande. Right. But these billing records show you made 14 to 16 phone calls to one of the major participants, a man named Seth Ward and also drew up documents connected with Castle Grande. The big thing about this, again to most people, is it's again a contradiction. And there's not a contradiction. Castle Grande was a trailer park on a piece of property that was about a thousand acres uh, big. I never did work for Castle Grande. Never at all. And so when I was asked about it last year, I didn't recognize it, I didn't remember it, the billing records show I did not do work for Castle Grande. I did work for... It's really hard to tell when she's lying. ...something called IDC, which was not related to Castle Grande. Was that Seth... And Seth Ward, Ward. was involved in that. On Separate behalf. deal. Separate deal completely. 
So, you know, we've uh, asked uh, Mr. D'Amato, tell us what the inconsistencies are. I mean, any time we've been accused of something, eventually we have proven that it was a dry hole, that it was just another in the string of accusations. And we will do the same with these. Mrs. Clinton, while we are clearing up rumors, you know there is the reoccurring rumor about you and Vince Foster. What was your relationship with him? Oh, he was one of my dearest friends, Barbara. He was a colleague. He was a partner. He'd been a friend of my husband's since they were boys of four or five years of age. And I miss him. I miss him very much. And um, I just wish he could be left in peace because he was a, a wonderful man to everyone who knew him. You know, there is then this whole business after his suicide of whether you tried to... Um, have records removed or have them examined before they were shown uh, to the Justice Department. And you have said that you uh, did nothing to uh, impede the investigation into his death, had no concern over access to the documents in his office. But then there were these blizzard of phone calls, uh, you were in Arkansas, visiting your mother from the Chief of Staff Maggie Williams and the White House Counsel Bernard Nussbaum from their close friend Susan Thomas's phone calls back and forth, back and forth. And when Mrs. Williams and Ms. Thomason testified before the Senate committee, they keep saying they can't remember. So again, it all seems very mysterious, and it looks as if you had something to cover up. What? You know, I want to be very clear about this. Okay. There were no documents taken out of Vince Foster's office on the night he died, and I did not direct anyone to interfere in any investigation. I know very well what we were talking about. We were grieving. We were supporting each other. I was asking questions about how other people who were close friends and colleagues of Vince were doing, how his family was doing, and some of those phone conversations consisted of us sobbing on the phone. And nothing was taken from Vince Foster's office no. that you asked to have looked over, kept from the eyes of the I didn't even government. know he had documents of mine in his office, so that doesn't make any sense at all. You know, on the one hand, the fact that these two records, the billing records and uh, the travel um, memo come up this week is certainly not something you could have wanted when you're trying to publicize no. a book, right? That's right, absolutely. Okay. Although Senator DeMotta said, implies that they were going to be found anyway and that's why you had to release them. But uh, the White House is not Grandma's attic and for two years people have been looking for these records. They were in your personal... Um, oh my God, just like the emails. Facts. I mean, one wonders why they were just found now. Well, one of them was. What does it look like up there with your records? It is a mess. I mean, that is something that... It's hard to understand. But I think people do need to understand that there are millions of pieces of paper in the White House. And for more than two years now, people have been diligently searching. But, you know, it's something that I can't explain because I wasn't part of finding it, didn't even know it was there. But I'm glad it was found. Why don't you just go up to Capitol Hill and talk to the Senate committee yourself and get this all over with? Well, we'll cooperate. So I think you get the point of my video. There's a dark, dark past with uh, Hillary Clinton and the Clinton administration. We're going to end on uh, a lighter note. Probably didn't dig as deep as I should have. <laughs> We're going to play a 25-minute video. Holy shit of Norm Macdonald crushing Hillary and Bill Clinton. No, we'll just play a little bit of it, and then I'm going to stop the video. Thanks for watching. President and the first bitch.
Hey, hey, slow down, you bitch. Let me catch up. I, right up. Hillary Clinton invited Newt Gingrich and his mother to the White House. Apparently, she's hoping they'll get caught in the crossfire. <laughs> Here we see President Clinton looking for something, anything, to hug besides his wife. <laughs> in Whitewater News, federal regulators quizzed Hillary Clinton at the White House this week and gave her a perfect score on the lying section. She's a dirty liar. <laughs> Our top story tonight, as new questions arise about Hillary Clinton's role in Whitewater, the president appears to be distancing himself from the first lady. Earlier today in his weekly radio address, the president insisted, hey, I sleep with hundreds of girls, I can't vouch for all of them, you know? <laughs> Meanwhile, the war of words between President Clinton and New York Times columnist William Sapphire continued to heat up. It all began when Sapphire called the First Lady a, quote, congenital liar. Clinton responded by saying Sapphire, quote, deserves a pop in the nose. Sapphire replied by offering to fight Bill Clinton, quote, anytime, any place. The president answered, quote, how about right now? Then hopped a plane to England and lit up a big fat joint. Is the First Lady a compulsive liar, though? It's beginning to look that way. In an interview on last night's 2020, intended to promote her new book, It Takes a Village, Mrs. Clinton folded under tough questioning by Barbara Walters and admitted that, in fact, it does not take a village, and furthermore, that she was aware that it does not take a village when she wrote the damn book. Oh, my tie looks funny. Thanks there, Bobby. <laughs> for years, Hillary Rodham Clinton has told people that she was named for the first man to climb Mount Everest, Sir Edmund Hillary. But as Esquire magazine recently pointed out, Sir Edmund did not climb Mount Everest until 1953, six years after Hillary was born. However, the First Lady does have a good explanation for the discrepancy. She loves to lie. <laughs> Questions about Hillary Rodham Clinton's truthfulness. In an interview this week, the First Lady claimed that she won the women's 100-meter dash at the 1956 Olympics, and that she had an IQ of, quote, over 700. <laughs> when it was pointed out to her that these uh, were not especially good lies, Mrs. Clinton responded, I know, I have a problem, and then added, I invented the formula for 7-Up. <laughs> Our top story tonight, astronaut Shannon Lucid, back on Earth after a record six months in space, was welcomed home Tuesday with a phone call from President Clinton. Said the president, quote, this is just the beginning. One day we'll be able to send an American into space indefinitely, and I hope it's a woman. <laughs> presidential campaign, Bob Dole has $19 million left to spend, while President Clinton has more than $32 million. 
Joel plans to use his $19 million for TV ads, radio spots, and mass mailings, while a confident President Clinton has allotted all of his $32 million to a crooked Arkansas land scheme. <laughs> Though more indictments are likely in the Whitewater investigation, President Clinton is still refusing to say whether he will pardon former Whitewater associates Jim and Susan McDougal. But when asked if he would pardon First Lady Hillary Clinton, the president was crystal clear. Quote, she does the crime, she does the time. <laughs> the announcement of the verdict came toward the end of President Clinton's annual State of the Union address, and to many observers, completely overshadowed the event. Even the president was distracted during his speech, waiting to hear...